Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer. Thank you, as always, for listening. In many parts of the country, as I'm recording this, it's damn hot still. But fall is right around the corner. And for travelers, that could mean a fall foliage trip. To help us discuss the best way to plan one of those, I have Amy Tucker. She's the senior digital editor and the home editor for Yankee Magazine and NewEngland.com. And welcome to the Farmer Travel Show, Amy. Thank you so much. So obviously, New England is a classic place to go for fall foliage. Um, and I know that you guys at Yankee, you spend a lot of time. I mean, this is your Super Bowl, Mel Allen, your editor always says. This is this is a big deal for Yankee Magazine. Tell us a little bit about what goes into the predictions you make about what fall foliage season will hold. Sure. Yes. Fall foliage is definitely the time of year that we sort of look forward to the most. It's when we find ourselves engaging the most with our locals and with bout-of-towners. And we look forward to it every year. We like to say that with foliage, there's a certain amount of predictability. There is always going to be those cider donuts and those leaf peeping drives. But the thing that we never can predict, which keeps it exciting every year is, of course, the weather, which (laughs) don't have any control over. And so we do work closely with we have a long term meteorological science uh, teacher expert, Jim Salji. He's wonderful. And every year he does a lot of long term forecasting for us. And he puts together a great fun, dynamic forecast that we roll out in August, and it's updated throughout the season so that folks can plan their trips as best as possible. You know, many parts of New England, is it fair to say there's been drought in many parts of New England this year? Does Jim think that will affect foliage? Yes. Um, It's funny, you know, it's just one more reminder that nothing relating to weather, especially in New England, is consistent. Last year, the big story was record rainfall. And this year, hmm. in parts of New England, which is, of course, the key the key detail, parts of New England, um, there right. are some drought conditions, especially in parts of Rhode Island and in eastern Massachusetts, like in Boston, for example. There has been you know, record low um, amounts of rainfall. And these areas are, maybe this isn't the best year to do your, your main leaf peeping there. But the good hmm. thing... And the thing that Jim does get into in his forecast is that in northern New England, the drought level is is only abnormally dry. That's the technical term for for the conditions up there. The forecasts there are much better. There's been nearly 10 inches of rain in Concord, New Hampshire recently, and uh, more than 13 in Burlington. So definitely not the same, not the same throughout New England. We all know that if you just drive an hour in New England, you might as well be in a different, you know, a different climate, different topography. It's Hmm. it's really drastic the change. So some parts are experiencing drought, but certainly many parts. And the the nice part is it's the parts that people like to go to the most for foliage leaf peeping. Those parts are are doing great. Well, that's good. So Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine, because they've had just well, I, I would say slightly under 
the the usual amount of rain, but not drastically under, they're going to have very vibrant leaf peeping seasons this year. Is that fair to say? It definitely is fair to say that is what the prediction is looking like. We know that Mother Nature still has a few weeks to uh, to throw some stuff at us, but if everything kind of goes as it's looking, the word that Jim Selge used is spectacular, which is a wonderful wow. word. Wow. <laughs> oh, that is a wonderful word. So I, I hate to throw Rhode Island in the Boston area under the bus, but maybe those aren't the areas you go to this year. I think that there's always there's always good color to be found. There's always variations in elevation or little pockets that get hidden. Um, I would never say that there's a part of New England that's not worth exploring. And sometimes when you've got areas of drought, there can be bright, sudden bursts of really intense color, and it huh. can last longer. So sometimes... The peak will be normal in areas where the foliage is normal, but when the foliage is a little bit abnormal, the peak can also be pushed out a little later or do some funny things. So I would say in southern and coastal parts of New England, you may see some sort of sporadic but very intense bright color just um, on, a, on a little bit of a different timeline than normal. So certainly not 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 something to, uh, to pass up entirely. Right. When the peak happens, obviously depends on how far north you are. But it to me, it's always the rule of thumb that around Columbus Day weekend is usually when peaks happen. Will that be the timing this year? I, I believe so, yes. Um, we tend to see peak go in waves. Um, usually late September, we start to see those, the great north woods of New Hampshire, Vermont's northeast kingdom, you know, high elevations up in Maine. And then it starts to just spread its way down and it's never the same route twice. But, you know, starting in late September, middle peak is then that what you're describing the late, very late September through the middle of October when we get that wonderful holiday weekend in there. That's usually, you know, the main upper mid-coast, the Monadnock region of New Hampshire, the upper Pioneer Valley of Massachusetts. And that area is definitely, those are areas that are not drought impacted. So they should be, they should be following the typical peak timeline. And the other areas, the late peak is usually mid to late October, kind of through Halloween. We're, we're thinking it's probably going to be a little bit later this year into November for those areas south and uh, coastal along the southern region of New England in particular. Interesting. And I love the fact that this year you're not only getting a prediction from Jim Salji. Am I saying his name right? Yes. <laughs> yes. Good. Okay. Uh, but you also got his suggestions for the best fall drives. What are what are some of the places he thinks that people should be driving to see this magnificent scenery in fall? Well, Jim is an expert, but he's written lots of posts for us on our website. So if you're curious about some of Jim's expertise in other areas, um, if you go to newengland.com and just search for his byline, you will find, oh my goodness, family-friendly activities, hikes, drives. Jim is a photographer, so he often will call out wonderful places for shutterbugs to visit. But some of the drives that he mentioned in his um, print piece, which you can find in our September-October issue, um, Route 26 from New Remain to Colebrook, the Kank, of course, in New Hampshire, one of the most famous foliage drives of them all, and rightly so, Route 52 in Mount Batty in Camden Hills, Maine, which is a nice coastal uh, foliage drive. Mm. And then Route oh, nice. Yes, in southern Rhode Island, he did. Um, he has a Rhode Island pick there. And we are thinking with the 
with the foliage forecast sort of coming later than we went to print, we're hoping that Jim might be willing to give us an updated list on drives based on the actual updated huh. forecast. So if you keep checking our website, you'll see even more recommendations. You said that the kank. I hope I'm getting that word right, is yeah. famous. What makes it famous? Oh my goodness. It is, uh, if you can, it, it's one of those things in New England where if you, you're saying, if, if you know how to pronounce it, the Kankamagus, the Kank, the Kangamangus, you hear <laughs> lots of different variations. It's a, it's a hard word to spell, but um, it's Route 112 and it's up near Conway, um, New Hampshire. And it is just you find yourself on it, you know, because you're looking around and you're saying, where am I? It's it's closed in the winter. That's how high up and twisty and beautiful and huh. scenic it is with lots of pull-offs. And of course, there's wonderful tourist destinations on either side. So it is it is a wonderful, it's popular. So if you can um, go during the week during foliage, you'll, you'll have mm. a better time probably. But it is just a, a picture-perfect foliage drive from Conway to Lincoln, New Hampshire. And you also... Have- shown a spotlight on Route 7. What what makes Route 7 so interesting? Route 7 is one of those um, drives that is, it's sort of like a bucket list foliage drive if you've really got some time because it it is three states. It starts up in Shelburne, Vermont. Our drive um, starts up in Shelburne, Vermont, which is you know near Burlington and Lake Champlain, and it goes all the way down through Vermont, um, through New Ham- through Massachusetts, you know, into Connecticut, into Kent, Connecticut. Mm. So it is it is one of those drives where there's lots to see, lots to do, and you're really getting three states worth of experiences. Well, I know in the first part of it, you have that incredible. Oh my goodness! Is it called Sherburn Sher- Farms? Uh, Shelburne Farms. A- um, uh, yes, Shelburne Farms. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it's beautiful up there, and some some fascinating historic attractions because you can't just stare at leaves for day for days on end. No. So, what are what are some of the top attractions and festivals that people should keep an eye out for this fall? Oh my goodness. There's so many. Um, and especially the last few years, I know we've all been altering our travel um, in ways big and small. And it really feels like New England has just been waiting to roll out that red and gold and, and yellow carpet of leaves. Um, so this year is no exception. There are festivals and fairs, so many agricultural fairs, big and small, taking place throughout New England. We've got apple orchards everywhere. And if you're going to pick some apples, make sure that your destination has cider donuts. <laughs> Just because <laughs> you do not want to miss out on a bag of cider donuts. And the rule is they don't last longer than a day. They're so fresh. So it's okay to eat the whole bag. <laughs> uh, those, are, those are wonderful. There's pumpkin festivals throughout New England. Some of them are quite unique, and um, yeah, lots of opportunities. What, what makes what makes them unique? Well, there's one in Damascotta, Maine, where they do like a derby almost, where people get into large pumpkins in the water and um, like ride them like boats. It is oh my goodness, and they they have these pumpkin chucking um, where they like catapult pumpkins, and um, <laughs> it's, it's really fun. I've never. I've never heard about the boat pumpkins yeah. before. That's hilarious. No, they do things well, different in Maine, and they're going to do things different with pumpkins in Maine. So that's that's just something to put on your list. <laughs> wow, wow. Well, you've you've made me want to ditch summer. It's been it's been an up and down summer. Recently, it's been beautiful, but uh, sometimes I've been really, really longing for sweater weather, oh. as they call it. 
Well, thank you so, so much. Once again, we've been speaking with Amy Tucker from Yankee Magazine and NewEngland.com, and there's lots of resources on NewEngland.com if you want to do a road trip in that spectacular region. Thanks again, Amy. Thanks so much, Pauline. Our next guest is Sabine Bergman. She is the co-CEO and the co-founder of Hidden Compass. Hey, Sabine, welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. Thank you so much for having me. So let's get it out of the way first. What is Hidden Compass? Well, Hidden Compass is a women-founded media company. It was started by me and my co-founder, Savani Babu, who is an incredible landscape photographer. Uh, We founded the company in 2017. We were both full-time freelance journalists traveling all over the world. You know, I was in Mexico swimming with sharks or in the Andes escaping (laughs) political unrest. And Savani was doing crazy things like sailing the Drake Passage to Antarctica. And we met in a bookstore. And just really the same bookstore where we are right now, I should say. We are at the wonderful Book Passage Travel Writers and Photographers Conference. If any of our listeners want to ever become a travel writer, this is where you come or start a business, as you found. Yes. And I didn't even know we were going to start a business. We just bonded over our love of long form journalism and started a writing group. And Hidden Compass really was born out of this feeling of. Uh, frustration with the industry. It was a time and still is a time where a lot of publications are in precarious circumstances. And so they are uh, oftentimes cutting staff and looking for ways to shorten content and produce more content. And Savani and I were both very frustrated by this. We were like, we need a publication that is like the antithesis of clickbait. It needs to exist. Uh, And so we founded Hidden Compass to kind of end this era of what we call junk food media. Right. And very, very briefly, I mean, your business model is very interesting. We don't usually get into business models because we're talking to travelers. So in a nutshell, how is it different? It's totally different. So people come to me all the time saying, I love Hidden Compass. I want to subscribe. And we don't have subscriptions. And we don't have advertising. (laughs) So we basically do it different from every other publication. And the idea is that we want to invite people to participate and be involved in Hidden Compass. Uh, We call it like farm-to-table journalism. So you know how in farm-to-table uh, movement for the food industry, you get to know where your food is coming from. Sure. We do this with stories at Hidden Compass. So you get to meet the human beings behind the stories that you're reading and the photographers behind the stories that you're reading. And we have a patronage model where we pay all of our contributors. But then on top of that, we have a campaign and we ask our readers if they are moved or excited by a story or they feel connected to the writer or photographer that they contribute to those campaigns. And then we split the proceeds of those 50-50 with our contributors. Wow. Okay. Have you ever had 
because uh, I, I was talking with a guidebook writer who's here, a wonderful woman named Celeste Barish, who writes for Lonely Planet, and actually, uh, and also uh, with a writer from Moon, and she was saying that sometimes they have had problems with companies getting bad reviews and then giving bad reviews on Amazon to the book, hmm. to the travel guide, and then that sinking sales. Have you ever had people come back to you and say, I was so angry with this story. I don't, I want to do the opposite of give you my patronage. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we publish stories that challenge our readers, right? And we are not afraid to publish things that are a little bit edgy, I would say, you know, Give me an example. Um, well, for an example is we published a piece on polar bears. Um, and I remember having a discussion during our editorial meetings. It was a photo essay and there was a photograph of a dead polar bear. Huh. And we ended up running that photograph because it was integral to the story. It was about the survival of the species. It was about trying to track the numbers. And it just felt like something where, okay, we might make a lot of our readers uncomfortable, but this is important for the story. And so we're going to do it. Um, and so, you know, that means that you're in a position where sometimes people feel um, upset or moved or angry, but they're talking about it. And that's right. what matters. And what was the reaction? Were people upset by the polar bear photo? Oh my gosh. We got a really big reaction just to publishing the polar bear piece in the first place, because mm. it is about climate change. And that becomes a very uh, heated topic. And so we got a lot of press on that. Uh, but it was actually really good because a lot of people read the story. Huh. Wow. So it, it was more about the story then than about that photo that people reacted to, I would think. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And we were, we were concerned about the story. We thought, or I mean, the photo, we thought that people would be very uh, upset about seeing a dead polar bear, but it really just publishing any piece on that topic was, was what a, created the controversy. I guess so, in a travel centric magazine, yeah. there's a big issue for people who feel that travel is their lives uh, with climate change because you don't want to think of yourself as a bad guy. Have you tackled climate change a lot? I mean, it's that's a hard thing for a travel magazine to do. Yeah, yeah, it definitely comes up. I mean, we and and you know this working for a publication, we have to think about what we're contributing to yeah. the global conversation. You know, and the global conversation right now is oftentimes about climate change, and travel is a huge part of that. Right. Um, and so there are a lot of questions about, you know, the impacts of tra travel on climate change, but also how travel can empower local communities to do things that are actually environmentally beneficial. And so right. it's not an easy answer one way of that or the other. Is it good or is it bad? The answer right. is kind of yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's true. It's like the rainforests of Brazil. Mm -hmm. Tourism could have an effect of helping save them to a certain degree, not all of them. I don't want to be, you know, Pollyanna-ish about this. Uh, but, you know, you have a lot of, of agriculture, people coming in because they want palm oil and destroying acres upon acres of, of the rainforest that we all need for global climate. And maybe that can be offset by tourism, but then you have the tourists flying there. <laughs> so yeah. what did it actually help? It's hard to it's hard to make those calculations. Yeah, it's really hard to tease out. Yeah. So so tell us about some of the other uh subjects you've covered recently. 
So we have five different departments at Hidden Compass, uh, and they are all kind of weird. That's why we started the <laughs> publication. Uh, one is called Chasing Demons, which are stories about kind of the darker aspects of travel, which could be an environmental impacts. As sure. an example, we have uh, portrait pieces and quest pieces and human and nature pieces, time travel pieces that take place in, at multiple times, usually braided narratives. Um, Wait, what is a braided narrative? What do you mean by uh, that? Ah, yes. Um, so this means that you have uh, a story that's taking place in different places or different times. And so you'll have different threads of a story. Uh, and it, you have a scene that's in one thread. And then a braided narrative is you take in a different thread of a story that okay. perhaps is taking place somewhere else. So are you saying somebody might write about their own trip and then look at the Victorian era and imagine somebody at that time and what they would have, or is it really just yeah. the narrator's different uh, it, times? It could be anything. I mean, the first piece that jumps to mind for me that we published was by a conflict photographer, Edmé van Rijn, who is an incredible person um, and hadn't really written a story like this before in her career, but we really pushed her to do this. And it was a braided narrative of her own experience as a conflict photographer in the Middle East and uh, as a dog sledder in Norway. Huh. Um, so you'd huh. in one scene, you would be in a Palestinian village on the West Bank that had just been hit by a Molotov uh, cocktail wow. in like someone's home. Um, and then the next scene, you're on the back of a dog sled uh, in darkness. And all you can see is is what uh, the narrator can see with her headlamp. How did the two fit together? I'm having trouble conceiving right? this. I mean, did the dog start fighting? <laughs> This is this is one of my favorite kind of pieces to publish are the ones where you think, what, like, how could these possibly fit? But it was really about her uh, experience and mental health and what it was like for her as a conflict photographer uh, and what it was like for her to uh, be a dog sledder and in these extreme environments. Um, and she wrote about the similarities of like what she felt when she was on the back of the dog sled and when she was uh, in conflict zones. Uh, and so wow. you kind of got the experience of what it was like to be a conflict photographer and to have that kind of life through her delving into that experience and bringing it to life. Fascinating. So it sounds like, I mean, from what you've told us so far, it sounds like you're publishing the works of people who, for whom travel is kind of a, a an offshoot of what their real work is like you have somebody who studies polar bears mm -hmm. and the travel is is just something that they do to get there you have somebody who's a conflict photographer do you also deal with just vacation travel or pure <laughs> travel yeah we can i mean you're so perceptive in picking up that we love the intersection of travel with other disciplines whether sure. it's history or science or ethics or whatever um and sometimes we run pieces that are just about the experience themselves uh, although we often like to look for the greater resonance there. Uh, one example is, so at this, at this conference, we're at Book Passage Travel Writers and Photographers Conference. In Cordia Madera, in California. Madera. <laughs> this podcast is not sponsored by them, but no. maybe it should be. Um, and Robert Holmes, who is an incredibly celebrated, world-renowned uh, photographer, travel photographer, and mountaineer. And curmudgeon. Yes. <laughs> delightfully so. Gave a presentation last night that was actually a story that we published in Hidden Compass. And this was one of those pieces that was purely about the travel experience. 
And I remember talking to Bob because Bob reached out to us. He wanted to write for our publication, but he didn't know what to write. And so we went out to lunch, me and Savani and Bob. And he said, you know, I want to write a story for you, but I don't have a good story to write, which is impossible. Yeah, crazy. You know, you know, Bob, and he's so, he's so He's lived a life of adventure, too. His bio is so long that I have to take deep breaths when I'm reading it. (laughs) You know, he has more awards than we even have time to mention here. And so he said, Bob, that's impossible. You must have a story. And so he said, well, there was that one time that I almost died in Pakistan. We said, okay, tell us more. Right. (laughs) You know, and he said, well, you know, I was stranded at the top of the Hisbar Glacier uh, in Pakistan. And one of our expeditioners had to be airlifted out with a helicopter because he had broken his leg. So I was up there uh, stranded with another uh, mountaineer who actually didn't really have a lot of mountaineering experience. And I didn't really know the way down the ice glacier. (laughs) And I was having uh, symptoms of hepatitis at the time. And what complicated things was that there were two feuding villages and we got ensnared in the center of that. And so there were actually people who were pursuing us down the mountain. And so we were trying to escape in the dark, uh, you know, in very difficult terrain. And I actually had to fight them off with my ice axe. And we said, Bob, I think that's a story. (laughs) And he said, no, that's just another adventure story which became the title of the piece, Just Another Adventure Story. That's good. Wow. So do you ever have somebody going to Paris? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Or to London or to places where you don't have to fight off people with a pick axes. I feel like we've we've talked very much about really extreme, um, but I, I feel as somebody who well, you know, I guess I've mostly traveled to the the more standard places, but there are tremendous adventures to have in those too. Yes. I mean, there, yeah, there are incredible experiences you can have all over the world. You don't need to be in near death situations to publish with <laughs> Hidden Compass. You can write about art and culture. I mean, our latest issue, we ran a story uh, called The Fifth Element, which is about hip hoppers in Paraguay huh. um, who are rapping in the language of Guarani which doesn't uh, get a lot of really uh, time or (laughs) attention. Or, I mean, they probably have a pretty limited audience, I would think. You would think, but it's actually really taken off and it has become this kind of movement of empowerment. Um, And in that story, we weave in clips uh, and videos of the music. Um, oh, that's fun. So we love publishing pieces about music and culture and, and so, history. And that also leads us to the nitty gritty fact that you're publishing online. Yes. <laughs> you're not sending out CDs to people with the publication. Right. Yeah. And so we get to do fun things like weave in uh, music videos into our publication. And that is the digital landscape is really where we're innovating. You know, uh-huh. I talked about our patronage model. We also have digital events. And so that's another way that we are able to make money as a publication is we sell tickets and we bring in journalists and but also scientists and academics to give talks about that are really celebrating stories of exploration. Travel is often exploration. We're venturing to frontiers, sometimes physical, sometimes intellectual, sometimes ethical. Right. And, you know, the beauty of travel is that it puts us in situations where we can gain new perspective and we celebrate that. Yeah. It's interesting that you link the words exploration and ethical, because I think a lot of us over the years, I mean, 
the traveler's, what's the word? The traveler's ambition is to go out and explore. And yet there are overtones of colonialism to that uh, in ways that you wouldn't even think about until it's brought to your attention. And so it's an interesting thing to be a travel writer right now and to be sensitive and not not make it, I came, I saw, I conquered, you know. Exactly. Yes. And exploration has a complicated history and a dark history. And there, you've mentioned a lot of that and what you just said. You know, we often think about what exploration used to look like hundreds of years ago, right? But exploration is totally different now. I mean, you think about the kind of frontiers we get to explore. A lot of people think, okay, we've we've been everywhere, which isn't true, actually. No, is if you so. think about the ocean, we've only explored like a tiny percentage huh. of it. You know, we know the surface of the moon better than we know the seafloor, for instance. Huh. Um, so there are physical frontiers we haven't explored, but we are at a moment where we're thinking, you know, exploration isn't about conquering anymore. It's about understanding, hmm. you know, right. Wh- what should we be doing and where should we be going and how do we collaborate and how do we be better? Right. And I love, I love that detail about the, we know the surface of the moon better than the sea. And that comes from your background, I would yes. think. You're, you're, you come to this from a scientific background. Talk a little bit about how you got into travel. Yeah. So I, I love writing and I love stories, but I never imagined that I would go into this as a profession. You know, my background is in environmental science. And I really, I really only moved into writing as a career when I had this really impactful experience in Bolivia when I was 19 years old. So I had the privilege of being able to move to Cochabamba, Bolivia, uh, when I was a student at Stanford. And I partnered with a farmer's aid organization there. We went out into the Andes to interview indigenous subsistence farmers. And I was there at a time that was very rocky politically. There's a lot of political unrest. Uh, what were you interviewing them about? Uh, very briefly. The, their adaptive capacity to climate change. Oh, that's important. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So essentially how these communities who were largely living off of oral traditions that had been passed down for hundreds wow. of generations um, could, could shift their practices to adapt to changing climate. Um, And the idea was to interview as many uh, of these communities as possible and to publish, which became impossible because of the political unrest that was shutting down transportation in the country. Wow. So I ended up being stranded uh, in this community. You know, this was a place you only really could get to if you knew someone who had been there before because there weren't roads that would take you there. We, We drove out in a pickup truck and we left the the truck and we we actually walked out on these ancient walking paths that had been used for generations wow. and we went with a Quechua Spanish translator and a couple of my colleagues and I remember being out there thinking okay we're not going to get enough data to publish anything but I ended up sitting with these older women who were as it turned out kind of the last members of this community that had lived off of oral traditions for so many years for basically back since the advent of Andean agriculture 8,000 years ago. Wow. And these were the last members of that community. These are the last keepers of these oral traditions. And that experience of being with these women was impossible to quantify scientifically. 
so I just wrote about it and I wrote about it and I wrote about it. Um, I spent months writing about my experiences in Bolivia and then I sent out stories to every publication I could get the address for and mailed them out. And my first publication was actually with the best travel writing book series. Wow. Oh, that's great. Got me hooked. So I just, I went from there. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Can I ask you, I mean, this is a little bit of a a sidebar, but Mm. the oral traditions that they shared with you, were they myths were they family histories? I mean, what did you learn from these women? Ways of, of dealing with relationships? I mean, what what were they talking to you about? Kind of everything, way of life. A lot of it was agriculture-based, so huh. looking for signs in nature to uh, allow them to know when to plant. So, for instance, when birds would uh, create nests higher up in the trees, they knew that the rainy oh. season was coming. Wow. And so that's when they would, they would plant so that they would get, you know, irrigation from the sky, which is how they did it for so long. And did they tell you that the birds were no longer doing that? Or? Well, so this is why they were the last members of this community is because the natural rhythms had changed so much because of climate change Yeah, uh, that most people just ended up migrating away from that area. Huh. Oh my goodness. Wow. Have you written about that for Hidden Compass? I have. (laughs) I have. The story is called The Point of the Wilderness, which Uh comes from the name of that community, which is Monte Punta, which translates roughly to, you know, the point of the mountain or the point of the wilderness. The point of the wilderness. That's a beautiful phrase, actually. (laughs) Thank you. It has so many, could have so many different layers and meanings. So when people go to hiddencompass.com? Dot net. Dot net. Yes. Thank you for asking. (laughs) Uh, can they see your archives? I mean, how do people yes. navigate the site if they want to find, say they're going to Paraguay or London or somewhere else in the world and they want to see what your writers have written mm-hmm. about? How do they find that? That's a great question. So I highly encourage people to go there and explore. We have a search bar and you can navigate by continent. Uh-huh. Um, huh. So if you're looking to travel to a certain place and you want to learn more about it, you can sort through stories by continents. Um, You can also go through by departments, as I said before, if you want to read kind of chasing demon stories or if you're interested in the environment and want to read human and nature stories, that's a way to sort through through our search function. Uh, Or you can just kind of wander around the website and see like, oh, what stories do I want to read? What events do I want to go to? Um, And also for those who are interested in applying for funding, we have this is our first year that we're awarding a Pathfinder prize, which is a $15,000 award um, for a modern expedition. Huh. So you're going to be, so people who don't necessarily want to be travel writers, Mm -hmm. but who want to take an expedition somewhere. How are you defining expedition? Uh (laughs) Aha. So it's broad um, and it basically is just a voyage of discovery. Um, And this can be a physical voyage of discovery. We talked about intellectual and ethical frontiers as well that can certainly play into it. We have, so we don't have a subscription, but we have a membership model. um, And it's kind of like a modern society of exploration. Right. uh, And those members get to actually watch the finalist teams uh, for this prize present. Right. And they get to choose the expedition that we fund. How many people have applied so far? Oh my gosh. Uh, We've gotten... I have to check, but we've gotten dozens. Um, but $15, we still thousand dollars. Yeah, mean, that's nothing to sneeze at. That's that could change somebody's life. Yeah, and the 
the um, deadline is August 25th. So oh it's, I don't know when this, this podcast goes, comes this out. This goes out tomorrow. <laughs> oh my gosh. So you have so you have, time. you have a few days if you're listening and you want to apply or if you want to be a member of, we call it the Alliance and you want to have a say in modern expedition um, and modern exploration, you want to decide the expeditions that we fund, but then also follow them into the field and hear stories from the field while they're out there. Uh, you can become an ally also at hiddencompass.net. Wow. <laughs> wow. I can't wait to see who wins. It's going to be fascinating. And it's a great uh, publication online, as we said. Thank you so much, Sabine, for appearing on the Firmer Travel Show. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a blast. And thank you all for listening. I am going to be on the road next week, so I am taking off next week. Uh, but Hidden Compass has a wonderful podcast, so tune into them next week. Thanks again for listening, and to those who are traveling, may I wish you a hearty bon voyage. Okay.